Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it's hard to believe we've been having weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals has links to purchase the source material behind our adapted film discussions. Your purchases there help support the show at no extra cost. For the entirety of Season 11, we featured films directed by women. The only exceptions were some of our member bonus episodes. We talked about the lure for our horror debuts series, which is a very loose adaptation of The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Definitely miles from the Disney versions. <laughs> for our 10-year anniversary series, we covered We Need to Talk About Kevin, taken from the Lionel Shriver novel. Man, that was brilliant. And horrifying. Yeah. The Journalist series included Merrily We Go to Hell and The Weight of Water, adapted from Anita Shreve's bestseller. We filled some gaps in previous series with member bonus episodes on adaptations like Malcolm X, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dream House, Cactus Flower, Wild at Heart, Life Force, and The Blues Brothers. Our John Hurd series looked at a trio of adaptations, Chilly Scenes of Winter from the novel by Ann Beatty, Awakenings based on Oliver Sacks' nonfiction book, and Rambling Rose adapted from the Calder Willingham novel. Two films in our coming-of-age debut series were adapted from books, The Virgin Suicides from Jeffrey Eugenides and The Diary of a Teenage Girl, Phoebe Gluckner's graphic novel. We had Queen of Cotway for our sports series based on Tim Crothers' nonfiction book. And Clueless kicked off our 90s comedy series loosely adapted from Jane Austen's Emma. It totally took place in the 90s, though. <laughs> Find all of these books and more adaptations on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today.
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. After the wedding is over, it's sons and their father in the woods, or else they'll turn out gay. Minister. That's what a weird, weird line, line for you to latch on to. Because <laughs> it's like the weirdest line in the movie. It is yeah. a very strange line in the movie. All right. Well, it's, yeah. Uh, so we're doing After the Wedding, Andy. After the Wedding. It's the second and final film in our very brief Mads and Suzanne uh, series. It is very brief, but it did give us a chance to add Suzanne Beer's films to our list. And it also uh, got us talking about Mads Mikkelsen. And, I mean... Really, we need to talk uh, about Mads and Suzanne as often as possible. This was a great context to talk about both of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're adding this one to the list. So There are a number of, of After the Weddings. There's one from, I think, 1962. I haven't seen it. One from 2018, I believe. 20, 2019. It's the 2019 remake yeah. of this. Of this, which I haven't seen either, I think I think there was good intention that we might watch it in preparation for this show. Didn't, uh, and then there is the uh, this film from two thousand six. Correct. Okay. Yeah, I, I'd hoped to uh, to get the twenty sixteen um, one watched, but yeah. um, especially because I, I have a a great curiosity about how they handle the the um the situation we'll we'll talk about it yeah we got this situation. big situation yeah, that uh, situation. that is revealed early in the film i mean it's it's revealed fairly early in the film she's not really you know she's uh, her parentage the the girl getting married her parentage is in question yes so do you want to call call my shot what do you think i thought of it i would say that um that you really enjoyed this film that's it. No nuance to to that. You don't want to give a little color commentary, texture. I think this film <laughs> cemented your love for Mads Mikkelsen. And <laughs> you have decided that that if there ever was a man for you, it would be him. <laughs> COVID's really taking a toll on the old <laughs> Andy Nelson writer's room, isn't it? <laughs> oh, oh dear. That's not All much. Right. Not much there. All right. I just, I um, think you, yeah. Yeah. I think you liked it uh, uh, well enough. And I know that you did because you already posted a review. I did. Uh, and, well, and you know, well, we'll talk about it. A lot of teasing going on. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. This film, when it was released here in the States, was rated R for some language and a scene of sexuality. You want to watch this movie and help us out? Well, you can if you see the Apple or an Amazon link to the movie in the show notes right here on your podcast. Just click on it. It will take you right to their site and you can rent or buy the movie. 
This is this holds true for any of the movies that we talk about. When you do this, we get a little piece in return, and you, of course, get to watch the movie. And Amazon and Apple, they make off with uh, all sorts of money. So it's great. Everybody they, wins. <laughs> they make off with it? They get, oh, they get, there's... Yeah, I would. I'd venture to say they're making the probably the, one of the heftier chunks of the, of the <laughs> rental. You know, I'm sure. I'm sure Suzanne yeah. or Mads get a tiny trickle. Hey, speaking of a tiny trickle, uh, if you head to our merch store at truestory.fm/tnrmerch, you can buy shirts and bags and uh, and masks and and ha- not hats, uh, notebooks. You can get notebooks and pillows uh, with all the stuff that we've come up with uh, over the last uh, year on the show. You could do that, and then we get a tiny trickle. Whenever you buy, we get a tiny trickle, a sniff, as they say, uh, at truestory.fm slash TNRmerch. No idea what this is going to be. Maybe a pregnancy test? You know, you said, speaking of a tiny trickle, and I immediately went to the Green Mile and Tom Hanks. And yes. I'm just like, is he, That's of course is he, where you go. is there going to be a, a plug for a shirt about somebody who's having a, you know, bladder issues? A tiny trickle. Where, where are we going with this particular <laughs> marketing? Yeah, that's good. Yes, yes. Hey, we would love to feature audio reviews from you, our dear listeners. If you send us an audio file, just send it over to reviews at truestory.fm. Once you watch the movie, we just might end up showcasing your voice on the show. You got to get them in quick. We do record early. So uh, the sooner you get your clip into us, the more likely it will end up in the podcast. Again, just send it into reviews at truestory.fm. But wait, how would I ever know what movies you're going to be talking about in the coming weeks, months, and seasons? Well, that's easy. Just head over to letterboxd.com slash the next reel. Letterboxd is the greatest social network for movie lovers. And that URL there, letterboxd.com slash the next reel, is our HQ page on Letterboxd, where you can find all of our watch lists and uh, reviews and show, show links. Everything you could ever want to see about the show is available from Letterboxd. And when you get there and fall in love with it, like we know you will do, you can sign up to a pro or patron membership yourself and remove those ads and know that you're supporting a fantastic team of developers making this great social network for movie lovers. Just use the code NEXTREAL at checkout and you will get 20% off. And hallelujah, this works for renewals as well. Just like letterboxd and their memberships we have our own membership as well uh you can head over to our site and you can sign up for it go to truestory.fm slash tnr membership and you can sign up in a month-to-month membership or at an annual rate and you get all sorts of wonderful wonderful things you get um bonus episodes we have all sorts of bonus episodes it's crazy how many bonus episodes we have uh you know just a few weeks back we released our uh, our member bonus episode to everybody so everyone could kind of get a taste of it but it was our blues brothers episode that we did as an as a uh, return to our great car chases series that was for our may epi- our, our may members and um, you know who knows what we're going to do for june but that will be one of our member bonus episodes we also do a flick chart re-ranking episode uh, where we uh, play around with uh, our rankings of all the movies that we've talked about on the show over in our flick chart. And uh, we do at the end of each series, we do a retake episode uh, where we kind of review in a little more detail uh, what we thought of the films of that particular series. And members also get to vote um, on what we're going to be talking about. And uh, they get 
episodes a week early. So all sorts of wonderful things that members can get. Again, you go to truestory.fm slash TNR membership to learn about the tiers. The most it'll cost you is $5 a month or $55 a year. All right, Andy, here we are uh, after the wedding. Mm, wow. Um, okay. So rich people, you want to talk about rich people first? Because my <laughs> goodness, is he's so, you know, he's rich, but he's approachable. Jorgen. Jorgen. Jorgen is, um, <laughs> it's, it's such an interesting character because he's such like the, the kind of the typical rich guy who, I mean, as we find out over the course of the film, there's a lot going on in his life, and he has decided to play God, and because he's rich, he's able to, and he's created this plan where he basically is moving all these pieces into a very particular place that he wants them in, because um, he wants to make sure that everything is, uh, is taken care of. And it's a really, uh, I mean, it's kind of like just one of those atrocious characters that that does these things that, and it's interesting the, the way the film sets it up, because you're not sure is like, is he really, did he set this up? Is this okay. com- yeah. incredible coincidence or what? In fact, maybe we should stop. We need start to talk. There. Yeah, we need to talk about what he what you're insinuating yeah. he set up, because I think that is worth discussing. So the movie starts. Mads is in India. Yeah. With Jacob as he's um, as he's you know kind of running an orphanage that's struggling for money. And he gets a call. Well, you see him interacting with his kids. Great rapport with the kids. But he needs to go back to Copenhagen to have this meeting with this uh, this company that wants to provide funding. But he has to do it in person. So he has to fly back. That's kind of our setup. That's the setup. And he doesn't, from a character perspective, there is nothing that indicates he wants to go on this trip. He wants to to stay in. He says, I don't, why should I need to go on this trip? Um, you know, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. He doesn't want to go. He's talking to the kids. He's like, I don't want to go. I'll be back really soon. I'll definitely be back for your birthday, Pramod. Like, um, this is, it's, I don't even want to go. Um, I get the sense early on that it feels like he's running from something. Like there is something that he is, he's happier. He's a fish out of water in India and he's happier there. So there must be something that he's running from that he doesn't want to deal with. That that was my early take on the character. Um, so and I think that's a goes, fair assessment or, or, or just like, it seems like maybe not running, but more comfortable now here than there. Like there's, yeah, there's this yeah, sense that, right. yeah. So I'll, I, so he ends up getting, he puts on a, a suit, which he has made, or at least tailored uh, in India. He gets on a plane and he goes back to, um, he goes home, Copenhagen. And uh, he is set up to meet with Jorgen. Uh, this is Jorgen Hansen, who is the CEO of this major Danish 
construction, I'm going to guess some sort of construction corporation. Yeah, something like that. It seemed yeah. like. He uses the word cranes all the time. He does. But I was like, is it hotels? Because he says, I, you, I can't wait till you can go stay in our place in Singapore or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, maybe yeah, it right. is a hotel. I wasn't yeah. sure. Okay. So it might be a, a hotel. Do, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Um, but it doesn't matter. He's made a lot of money and he has a lot of people who are out there helping him. So they have this meeting. And at that point, Jorgen is also dealing with this other sort of personal story, which is his daughter is marrying uh, one of his employees. Christian, right. Christian. And they're also preparing for the wedding. And Jacob happens to be in Copenhagen the very weekend of the wedding. And so Jorgen says, hey, why don't you come to the wedding? It'd be great. I don't know. Most of the people are going to be there either. Don't even worry about it. Come have a good time, have some drinks, eat some good food, and uh, you'll you'll stay as as you'll be there as our guest. Right. And he says, I really want to give you this money, but I'm going to think about it. I'll give you my final decision on Monday. That's kind of the setup. So he's like, well, all right, I guess I'll go to this wedding. Yes. Uh, And so he goes to the wedding. He ends up going to the wedding. And when he gets to the wedding, brilliantly late, by the way, I loved I love that that he gets there late because their their car is stuck behind a tractor that's taking yeah. up the road. <laughs> that's that right. Fun. And and the fact that the driver, you know, it's it is so not his fault. Right. The driver was the driver assigned by Jorgen, who's by, like the yeah, personal Jorgen, driver. Right. right. Exactly. So, yeah. So there was this this wedding sets up every bit of anxiety that for me, like it peaks my anxiety, like going first of all, just going. Going to weddings is is a lot. <laughs> it's a big ask. I'm not crazy about weddings. Uh, but second, going to a wedding at which I don't know anybody is uh, is maybe a bridge too far. But to go to a wedding where the wife of the millionaire industrialist is someone that you know or have history with, that is, uh, yeah, that's not that's not great. That's that is the the top layer of the anxiety layer cake. I can't I can't stand it. So the whole setup is deeply uncomfortable. And the wedding happens, the reception, and now the uh, speeches happen. And we're about a half hour into the movie, right? Yeah, it's it's this is all very much first act stuff. I yeah, mean, it's after the wedding is the title, so you know. And, and we should say, like unlike last week's, it's the title in English and in Danish. Either way, yes. it's all. After, it's all the, after wedding. the wedding. That's yeah. all you need to know is most of the, <laughs> the important stuff happens after the wedding. Right. And uh, and so the the you know, the new husband stands up and he gives a little speech and he's it, it's fine. He, it's and a, I love this. It is an ass kissing speech yeah. to his father in law. <laughs> Holy cow. It, it really is. And he says and if somebody actually yells from the audience, who are you marrying Jorgen or Annie or whatever, <laughs> like, who are you marrying? Um, it is uh, it is an ass kissing speech. But then. She stands up, the daughter. She stands up and says, I know it's not, you're not accustomed to uh, hearing daughters from the bride, or speeches from the bride, but I just want to say a few things. When you told me when I was 18, a few years ago, that you were not my biological father, and, and I, Andy, I'm not kidding, audible gasp from me sitting alone in my living room. That surprised me so much. So much. I just was like, oh my God, the drama. All of a sudden, everything falls into place. Not only does Mads, uh, Jacob, have a history with the mother of the bride, but now we find out he is also 
the father of the bride. Yeah. <laughs> and and that the industrialist uh, is is now in between this biological family unit. That was shocking and brilliant. Shocking and brilliant. And also, I was like... Who would give a speech like this? This is like this is like the, the the in and out like Oscar speech. And he's gay. Like you don't just come up and stand there. Oh, and by the way, my mom's my my mom had an affair when she was younger, or you know, slept with some guy. And, and you like, it was like, oh my, okay, who, you no. were way overthinking that. I think I was totally in it. I was totally oh, no, in no. it. I am too. I just, I okay. laugh about it because it comes across as like, <laughs> God, what about these people who had no idea? Like, it just ends up seeming like some thing that you like, <laughs> like, like letting the cat out of the bag that, oh yeah, yeah by the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, so the wedding goes on. There are many shocked faces. Uh, the wedding goes on. The reception goes on. And there's a lot of brooding, brooding in the dark, brooding in the corner. Mads is very clearly needs to talk to, um, the the mother Helen, and um, and so she he, he finally corners her and they have a a confrontation. Did you know? Did you know? Like this was mine and is that my daughter? Et cetera, et cetera. And um, she says, "I'll I'll call you. I'll call you." Well, at first, and she ve- very vehemently says, "No." Like, yeah, she's right. Yeah, like, but I but it's interesting because she's this situation has has hit everybody in this way where it's like how do you react like what's the right way to handle it in this particular i mean it's her wedding you don't want to create this scene oh it's it makes for one of the most uh intense uh uh, bits there it's it's so intense when all of a sudden all of this stuff is just hits so quickly yes now from there uh mads jacob makes uh, is waiting in his hotel room his amazing hotel room uh for uh the call that she helen promises she will make to him to further discuss this and uh she ends up uh, he ends up not receiving that call so he goes and um and goes back over to their estate and knocks on the door and says i need to talk to her everybody's there opening gifts the oh the new gosh. couple the mother and the father they're all hanging out opening <laughs> and parents, the grandmother yeah. who can't get on the internet to play because she's addicted to online poker <laughs> oh, <laughs> was so funny great um so they have the conversation but what what i love about it is they have the conversation the three of them the uh, Jorgen, Helen, and uh, Jakob, they're all yeah. having the conversation together. Right. And I think right. that's an Im- important bit that we'll come back to. Um, and it's very frustrating. And he's mad. Jakob says, hey, you got to tell her or I'm going to tell her. And he walks out and they end up having the conversation with the daughter. So now everything's out in out of the bag. All the cats are are out of the bag. Mm. And uh, and here we are. Right. I mean, that that pretty much catches us up to to the story. But I think it's important to say at this point also that Jorgen continues to say, I had no idea. He was just this business guy I'm doing business with. I knew his name was Jakob, but I didn't think he was that Jakob. That Jakob. Right. And they're like, it's the coincidence is too strange. How could you not have known? Like they're convinced that he had planned this. He keeps saying, no, this was just random. And this is what I, this is, this is why. So before you answer that question, the the second half of the movie it starts to come out that and i think really the third act is about the it, yeah. it reveals that um jorgen is dying and yeah. rather urgently 
Uh, and very, that, yeah, very much so. Right. And he has been, you know, in the very first sequence when he shows up at his estate house, he's taking some sort of pills, but he locks them in a safe behind a curtain. We don't really know the significance of that until later when she gets into that safe and finds it's like morphine and and all these these kinds of yeah. painkillers for his uh, condition. He is dying. And now we get to see that he's sort of putting pieces in place. He wants Jacob back in their lives. He wants somebody to work with Anna and and as part of the contractual agreement to get an extraordinary amount of money, way more than they'd asked for for this orphanage in India, one of the uh, one of the contingencies is that uh, you know Jacob has to live, has to stay uh, with them. He can't move back to India. Uh, sets up a lot of complicating factors, but it's it's Jorgen moving pieces around the board um, to do his his sort of post life planning. He, right. He he wants uh, a, a man back in his wife's life, basically, like potentially yeah. replacing him. He wants, uh, you know, the father figure to be in his daughter and also for their twins, he says. So it's interesting how he's like created this way to manipulate Jacob to come back to fill in for him as part of the family not and, and this business as well. It's. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's what I think is a very interesting way that he sets it all up. So here's this goes back to the question. The question we've been not answering the whole time is, did uh, Jorgen set this up from the beginning or was it machinations of convenience after he discovered that he had brought that particular Jacob to the wedding? I 100 percent think that he had found the Jacob. And he he had been following him, and he knew what he was doing. He knew how he lived his life, and he knew he was a good person. I mean, he's he's failed at all of the businesses, as he says, that he has tried setting up in India. Um, and currently, he's doing this orphanage. But he says, you know, your orphanage is going to be failing. It's 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 already on its way out. You need this, and so I think that he has. He he knows that he's a good person and has cleaned up his act. I mean, we, we've learned from the course of the film when he and Helen had their relationship 20 years ago that he was a drunk, that he had slept with her best friend, and he was unable to kind of get his life on track, which largely makes sense for the fact that he never came home and he's living this kind of life of this person who's trying to do good in the world because he can't figure himself out. Like, that's kind of the sense we end up getting of him as a character. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. But, but I do believe that Jorgen saw that and realized there's, there's a potential, there's a good person here who could actually make all of this work. And if I give him the money to do this... And I kind of force my hand for him to stay here. He could end up taking care of them, and that's uh, so. I 100 percent think that he figured all of that out, didn't tell anyone, and and put this whole plan together. I uh, it took me a while to come to that. I really thought that this was it was more uh, circumstance, not manipulation. That he that that Jacob showed up, and because they have that conversation early in the in the morning light, right? The day after the wedding, this is uh, Helen and Jorgen. And they have this conversation on the stairs of their estate 
because he hasn't come to bed and she catches him and she says, you know, did you know? He says, well, I didn't know it was that, Jakob, right? And over the course of the film, they keep coming back to this, you know, Jorgen looked for you and couldn't find you. He looked several times in India and couldn't find you. And so it, I think it does a good job of making the case that, in fact, it was just crazy circumstance that all these people, all these pieces would come together at the same time, in the same place, kind of accidentally, right? It's only in hindsight that I look at all of the pieces, like all the pieces together on the board that that make it feel much more like he was. Like, it, it, I think it's actually Jakob's line, It's uh, who says, you know, you are, you're made of money. Like, you seriously couldn't, hire an army to come find me like it would not have taken that much i'm not th- i wasn't that much in hiding and right. uh, and that's really the that's really the case the problem i think is that he jorgen plays it so straight like there's no sinister sort of bent to his portrayal of this character at all he feels completely authentic to me yeah so i don't know it was it ended up being a surprise uh, to me when it all came together at the end. But that actually does lead us to the third act, which is his his undoing, right? As he as he dies. And, you know, what? how did that hit you? The, again, this is this person who is playing God and has made these decisions about how things should be because this is how I envision it. He's put this whole plan together. He pretty much has to force his hand with Jacob because he has that confrontation toward the end. Now this is this is when um Jacob finds out what's going on, but he he's like he's offered him this twelve million dollar trust and he's gonna run it with Anna, but he has to stay here. And that's that sticking point. And Jacob is like, no, you can't you you just you think you can get whatever you want just because you're throwing money around, but screw you. And he walks out. And that's I think probably the first time that that Jorgen is confronted with the fact that he can't necessarily just buy things. And I found that to be really powerful because that's when he chases Jakob down in the street and reveals to him that he's dying and that he needs him to do this. And this is this whole thing that he's put together. And that's like the first honest moment where he's like having this, you know, he's practically begging him to do it. And it's it's interesting because... Jacob still walks away. I mean, he, you know, because of what happens afterward, he ends up changing his mind. But that was such an interesting moment that you have there where he's, you know, he is, he realizes that you can't just play God and manipulate all these things to get what you want. It's not, people have to be able to make their own decisions. And I found that to be really powerful. And it also helps. I mean, I love Rolf Losgard, who plays Jorgen. I mean, he was um, he was in A Man Called Ovo, which I just absolutely loved. And uh, so I think that he's just a, a very compelling actor and, and does a great job as this rich guy who is basically just, you know, the puppet master in this particular scene or in this situation. Yeah. yeah. And and so it. It's such an interesting setup that you have there that, of course, and then, of course, you know, Helen uncovers all the stuff, calls his doctor and finds out what's going on. 
and the daughter finds out and everyone finds out that he's dying. It's an incredibly powerful scene when Anna comes to talk to him at his office and tells him, you cannot do this. You know, I have, you can't, you can't tell me when I get to grieve. You have to tell, you have to talk to us. And his whole thing is he just didn't want anybody to look at him as if he were dead before he was actually dead. Mm -hmm. I get it. But at the same time, they need to know and, and they need to be able to, and she says, you know, like, I, I, I would be spending more time with you rather than doing these other things. Had I known, you know, I would be able to say the things to you if, you know, that I wouldn't say otherwise, you know, and yeah, and that's the stuff that he just doesn't see. And it takes that scene with Anna breaking down in his office for him to finally recognize that. And that's, that's the power of that. And that's where I think he has come full circle and he has learned from both Jacob and from her the error in his ways. And you can't just go around playing God. Yes, in the particular case, this stuff that he did, it does end up all working out. But it made it so much more complicated, you know? Yeah, yeah, I do. And and uh, I, I particularly love when Anna comes to his hotel room, to Jakob's hotel room, and says, can I stay here? After she walks in and discovers that uh, Christian has uh, was having an affair already. <laughs> already? Of, oh, my God. I mean, um, I wrote down in my notes. I'm like, God, are you, do you not even wait a day? Well, and as an aside, was who was he having an affair with? Was it, I could never quite tell from the angle. The the I my initial thought was that it was the woman that was making a pass at Mads Mickelson at the wedding mm. that he had to like freak out at because she wouldn't leave him alone. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I I don't know if that was if that was me just canoning it. I but I I really love that scene because for the first time in the movie, she says, "Can I stay here?" And we realize, okay, that's a father and a daughter. Right. For the first time, it's not a uh, I'm meeting you for the first time complication. It's like there is a need from her as a daughter and she goes to her dad for comfort and safety. And Mm. that was, I thought, a lovely, lovely twist on their relationship to grow their relationship almost effortlessly. For me, it was a switch. Loved it. Yeah. The scenes with them were always very powerful. Like the first time she comes to talk to him and they are, you know, they're struggling trying to figure out what to talk about. But just the way that he's fumbling, trying to help her open up that water bottle and stuff. Uh We already know he cares greatly about others. And it just felt like, like he had it in him to try to care for her and to take care of her. And so I loved those bits. And when she comes to him, I felt like she had that connection already. Like, you know, he, he will help take care of me. And it was really touching to see her come to his place, uh, feeling lost and everything and, and, um, and needing that, needing that, uh, comfort. And being able to find it. Right. Yeah, that was, right. it just was really special. I, so then we get to, I, I think the biggest, the biggest single moment in the third act is, um, you know, Helen sits next to Jorgen on the bed and he starts crying about 
um, about the end of his life, about the, uh, you know, the grief that he is going through knowing that he's dying, that there's nothing he can do. And it's all about him saying to her, like, why do you need me to answer this question about which class the twins are going to be in? Why you don't need me to do that anymore. I'm not, I'm not here, uh, for that. You have to make that decision on your own. And then he just amps it up. Um, and it was, uh, whew. It was a rough watch. Not going to lie to you. That was a rough watch. Yeah. I mean, he's a man who's been able to get everything. Uh, you know, he started poor and he's made a life for himself and he can get anything he wants. Doesn't mean he can, you know, uh, uh, stop from dying. And it's very difficult watching him fighting that and, and just howling, you know, I don't want to die. I mean, it's just, it's knowing that it's, it's impending. And, and I mean, we're never really sure exactly how short of a time he has, you know, because I mean, it seems like he's been uh, trucking along. Obviously, once she's called the doctor, it seems like it's pretty short. You know, it seems like there's not a lot of time left. And yeah, the very next scene, I mean, it's his funeral. So it's, it wasn't long. And it was, it was very difficult to kind of seeing a person go through that because you know that is probably how almost everybody feels when you hit that point you know and i mean he was what he was he he had his 48th birthday that's 48, yeah. like he had just turned 48 which yeah. as a 48 year old i gotta say it's rough it really yeah. puts a lot of things in perspective <laughs> yeah yeah it's rough i you know i mean it was i i think and and i should say personally that i'm sure that colors some of my impression of the film, because I feel like I just had those conversations with my dad. It's still really fresh. Um, <clears throat> like we went through the transition together of like the the last things. And I don't I I don't want to do this and I don't want to be where I am and that grief. And and it turned to this is right. This is I understand now that there's no coming back from that. So we got that roller coaster and we actually got it over about eight days. Um Instead of, I think, the uh, rather fuzzy uh, use of time in the movie. Um, and so I, I felt like that that sequence was incredibly powerful and authentic. And I didn't find myself um, shaken by it at, at all. I just was, <laughs> man, I, I was I was in it and grieving right along with him. Yeah. Yeah, very, very powerful yeah. the way all of this comes across. And that's what's so interesting is because like, and in a film where we're exploring altruism, you know, here we have Jakob doing everything he can to help these street kids in India uh, so that they can have a better life by building these orphanages. And that's his goal is trying to find ways to help these people. In a way, that's what Jorgen is also trying to do. They're all acting in ways where they're trying to help. They're trying to do something that's good. It's just, I, I think there's an element in the way that Jorgen pictures doing what's good and what's right in a way where it's, it's more manipulative and he doesn't just, he doesn't realize it. It's, it's um, helpful that by the end of the film, it feels like they they are in a place where they can come together and heal and work together and it feels very positive it's just it's 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 frustrating and it's sad i think that jorgen wasn't able to recognize that earlier on and and had to go about it this way 
Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting the way the film portrays wealth, though. I I don't get the sense watching this movie because I think it's easy to take swings at the ultra wealthy. And I don't think this movie does that at all. I think it's actually a really fair and balanced portrayal of like the effortless thoughtlessness of wealth, but not the maniacal sort of evil doing that no, can come yeah. with it. Right. right like right, right. Um, he has a lot of money and a lot of resources and has to make a lot of decisions because of that. Uh, and as as a result, it puts him in this position of like his past immediate past experience dictates his future action. And in that it comes off from our perspective as looking manipulative. I really don't believe that was his intention. And I think that's the lesson going into that third act is that he also discovers, I get how my intention could look this way, and I just don't want to die. And that's that drives, that has driven all of his actions to that point. I think the 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 sort of punchline to that in terms of the the arc of the story is when Jacob goes back to India and invites Pramod, his uh, very young protege at the orphanage, uh, whom he loves very much, to come stay with him, to come to leave India and come back and uh, and and be with him in Denmark. And Pramod says, but wait, <laughs> you think rich people are bad, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm going to stay here. Like it, your ideology that you taught me was so important to me and, and made such an impact that I'm not leaving this orphanage in India. I'm not going. And I thought that was uh, that that was a hard, a hard thing to to watch, particularly because it puts on Jacob's shoulders this lesson of the, the fact that wealth and privilege is not black and white, right? That that wealth and privilege does not necessarily make someone a, a bad person. Well, and also I think that it was an interesting thing that spoke to his place in the world. And, you know, he he had such a connection to Pramod who, you know, in the end we realize as much as Pramod really loved him and enjoyed spending time with him and stuff, his home was was Mumbai, and that's where he was from. Living in the orphanage, that's where he, that's where his friends are. It's not about just kind of this connection that he has with Jacob. He needs, you know, he he has a home, and it's about that space. Less so, just about being with Jacob. And and as much as he loves Jacob, it's really about that space. And that's, I think, also the moment that you have Jacob realize. It's okay if I don't go back there because he was really concerned that he wouldn't be able to um, be there. And he wanted to, uh, you know, he, I think that was a big part of, you know, his reason that he said, you know, I'm not going to take your money because he felt he had to be there to make it work. Yeah. And when he, when Pramod says that, it's almost like he finally has somebody saying, it's okay if you're not here. You can still put this in place and make it work for us to help us without actually being here. And I, I think all of those pieces, and that was the final piece that he needed to kind of realize it's okay if I'm doing this in Copenhagen. I can I can be helping take care of Anna. She can be working with me. I can be there for Helen. Whatever is going to happen 
you know, we don't see really any final resolution with, with all of that. We get a sense that everything's going to be okay, though. And that's what I found so kind of gratifying is, <laughs> again, yes, Jorgen was doing things for the right reason to try helping. It's just, you know, he had a hard lesson to learn. And that's that was a powerful journey for him. It was really kind of a, a very difficult comeuppance in, in, a, in a fashion to kind of have that lesson learned. And it really starts, I mean, it starts really when he comes home and his wife says, I talked to your doctor. And man, is he mad. Oh, yeah. How no, dare he, he tell you, uh, you know, that was yeah. uh, confidentiality. And but it's really because there's a chink in the in the in this structure that he's built. And yeah. um, and then and, and that's when everything really starts collapsing and then he has to deal with it. And I don't know. I just found it to be so compelling to watch him as a character have to figure out how to. Uh, you know, what's right and how how it should have been to get there. There is a there's a thing going on in this movie that uh, I really appreciated. Um, there, There's a lot of sort of, I would say, emotional intrigue going on in the movie. Right. And obviously we we have a lot to learn in the third act when we discover that he's been manipulating things all along. But. At no point do they use the script to keep secrets from one another. Every single turn, every single reveal could have been hidden from one or more characters, right? He could have decided, I'm not going to tell uh, Jorgen, we're not going to reveal to Jorgen that we actually had a relationship before or that we were, you know, or that Jorgen's not the, that Jacob is actually the father of Anna. We're gonna, we're not going to reveal any of that stuff. We're going to use, use the script to actually maintain artificial secrecy to build that sort of intensity in the, in across the course of our two hours together. And I was thrilled that every single sort of dramatic turn the movie took, uh, it wasn't because they were hiding something, right? It was because they were outing something. They were actually shining a light on something which could have caused shame or regret or whatever. And they were letting the characters play it out. And let's just see what happens if everybody knows everything all the time. So that makes the movie much more one about human reaction than artificial like storytelling uh, tropes to build secrecy and intrigue. And I loved that. And I bring all that up because as much as I was deeply relieved that this is not a Dogma 95 movie like Open Hearts, that was something that I think really came out of that. Uh, it just felt of a piece with the movement, with uh, the allowing humans to have human feelings and reactions and not, you know, not letting uh, letting the artificial secrecy actually define the story, but letting responses to tragedy and surprise rule the day and i thought that was really special yeah I, I i definitely agree with you and i feel like that's one of beer's strengths as she does these family stories where you feel like and perhaps it's also kind of like there's a lot of handheld photography like you feel very intimate with them i did also just notice man she loves capturing like a a single eye like matt's yeah single eye, like right across his nose, and you're looking at his far eye, 
And it's just an extreme close-up of just the eye and not just Mads. I mean, certainly we've seen, we've seen that through both films, but she is uh, really a master of extreme close-ups and of eyes, of their mouths, of different parts of their face as they're emoting. And I, I listened to some of an interview of her talking about it, and she talks about how when when you're that close, you're really like right up there uh, connecting to that person, but also it's creating this abstract image where it's it's more just a kind of about this shape on the screen, and in a way it 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 almost helps you find that connection that much stronger because because it is just kind of this abstract piece of an emotion. I found that to be a really interesting way to kind of look at the way that she was capturing um, the the moments of the characters. And I think it's a strength of hers is that she finds those ways to kind of get into the, it's almost like capturing just like the raw pieces of the emotion itself. I, I find it really interesting uh, with her as a filmmaker. I do too. And you, you bring up Mads, of course, but we get it with uh, Helen and we get it with Jorgen. We get some like real specific poor focus on Jorgen. He's got some real poor action going on, on his, <laughs> across the bridge of his nose. His T-zone is uh, captured uh, in some detail. It was only the uh, with Anna at the near the end. There's a uh, reveal. Anna says something. It, they're do, having an emotional reaction. And I wrote down that like that was the first point when it went from her eye to like her kind of her nose to her mouth. And it was her mouth, like giant mouth fills the whole screen. And it was the first time I thought, oh, what if I were uh, Steina um, Fisher Christensen, who play, plays Hannah, watching my mouth that big on screen? That's the first time it sort of took me out of the film. I was like, that is giant mouth. That is a giant, giant mouth. And I don't know what I would. I don't know what that added to the film. <laughs> I disagree. I loved it because... Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just because she had so much emotion, and yeah, and I I don't know. I just felt like it was all there. Um, yeah. So yeah, but I but yeah, it's definitely like you know a lot of big things, and, and certainly with Helen, uh, that's Sidza Babat Knutson, um, who I was. She was really uh, carried that role through a lot of ups and downs. Very interesting oh, performance. She's riveting. But yeah, also another person who just had to be very. Uh, comfortable with a lot of incredible close-ups of of her face. So yeah, yeah, yeah very she's interesting. Great. Yeah, she's somebody who has uh, also done more of these uh, Dogma ninety five films. Not that this is, but um, she had been in Mifune's last song, which was from ninety nine. I think that was the third one. She also had been in um, um, Susan Beer's film. Uh, I think it was her comedy that she did in ninety nine, the one and only. And uh, with Paprika Steen, who was in uh, last week's film. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I don't know if she has uh, worked with um, um, her again. I think those are the only two films that she's done with with her. But, um, uh, you know, she's another actress who uh, I, all of these performances, uh, they all carry the emotion in the film. This is it's a tricky film because there are such big emotions in this. You don't want it to fall into melodrama. You don't mm -hmm. want it to fall into something where it's just schmaltzy and it feels like manipulative. 
because because we're all being manipulated by Jorgen. He's doing right. all the manipulating. You don't want it to also end up feeling like the director used that as a tool to manipulate us as well. So she, uh, Beer, was walking a fine line in this her, with her script with Anders Thomas Jensen, but did it in a way where it all comes across feeling very real and authentic. And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, it really is. How quickly this film could have could have turned into a soap. And I, I never got that feeling at all. Yeah. I was yeah. in it. The only other thing, um, Johan uh, Soderqvist did the, did the score for this film. Um, he's done a number of her other films, Brothers, uh, Things We Lost in the Fire, and um, uh, uh, then he also did like Let the Right One In and uh, stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, a great film composer. I enjoy Johann Soderqvist's music quite a bit. Well, and speaking of the music, we should say uh, how fantastic it was that it, that Jorgen's like, favorite song was It's Raining Men. That, I know. I, I wrote that. I'm like, this is the amazing. second time in this film yeah. we're hearing it's raining men. What <laughs> is she saying about this character? Oh, so I thought funny. that was pretty good. Yeah. Very, uh, very interesting note for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Well, um, we will be right back, everybody. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by I Am Daylight, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Right, so we haven't watched the sequel, but there is one. Is there, it, no, it's not a. It's not a sequel. It's a remake. I mean, a remake. a remake. It's a remake. Yeah. Bart Frundlich did this in 2019. I remember talking about this on the Saturday matinee when the trailer came out because I was like, they switched the genders. So instead of Mads Mikkelsen, we have Michelle Williams, and instead of Rolf Lasgard. We have Julianne Moore, mm-hmm. and Billy Crudup is her husband, and uh, their daughter is Abby Quinn. And I'm like, the premise of this film <laughs> is that she got pregnant and never told him, <laughs> and he get, comes to this wedding not having any idea that there is a child. How does that work if you flip it? <laughs> that seems very tricky. I guess what they did. I'm I'm curious to see it. I I, I it doesn't have good reviews. It's a six three. It does make it over the six point. Yeah, Rotten Tomatoes is a forty five percent, pretty low over yeah. there. Metacritic fifty two percent. Yeah. The uh, I guess the way they did it is that they got pregnant and adopted, and right after they adopted, um, she leaves. And I guess what happens in the story is he changes his mind. And I guess, I don't know if this is really true, but I guess there's a 30-day grace period if you uh, put a child up for adoption. You can undo it. He changes his mind. I, I Apparently so. Within 30 days, 
I was pretty sure in adoption, I thought there was a no take backs clause. <laughs> I, I really thought that that was no do overs, right? I know. I, maybe it's like a you know a prenup. You, it all depends on how you get it written, who your lawyer is. Uh, wow. Anyway, there was a thirty day grace period. He reclaims the infant without telling her, and uh, and so that's kind of the whole situation, the way that it's set up there. Um, so I'm like, I guess there's a way you could make that work. It seems like even more of a stretch. It does seem like a stretch, but. Let me just tell you, I love that Billy Crudup. And oh, yeah, he's uh, great. He's really great. And he's one of those actors that as he ages becomes even more interesting every time I see him. So I'm I'm kind of into it for that. Uh, let's see. In the original, uh, Helen is 50, uh, the actress. Uh, I'll just go off of ages right now. She's currently 53. Mads Mikkelsen is 56. So they're very close in age. And and Rolf, who plays Jorgen, he's. He's 67, so a little bit older than mm-hmm. the two of them. In the remake, Michelle Williams is 41. Billy Crudup is 53. So there's already a little bit of a jump there. And Julianne Moore is 61. So it's there's an interesting age jump that they have with the characters here. I guess we're supposed to buy that Michelle and Billy were teenagers together. but hmm. Well, one, I don't buy that. And Julianne Moore is how old did you say she was 61 i don't buy that how is I don't buy that Moore in 61? real life she right. looks she looks younger than me seriously she does she looks younger than you <laughs> thanks thanks for that <laughs> i don't know well, all Crazy. i know is that um peter de Brugge in variety said about the remake this sensitive remake of suzanne beer's overcooked danish oscar nominee has shrewdly been flipped from a male driven meller to an, an emotional showcase for michelle williams and julianne moore he praises the film for its subtlety as it quote strips away anything excessive allowing subtext to surface in the quiet spaces between dialogue I, yeah, okay. it, but it also seems like he is one of the only people who actually liked the movie because hmm. generally it seems most people uh, were not a fan and were more fans of this one. So yeah, I, I'm curious to watch it, but I, I kind of think I'm not going to be a fan, but you're going to watch it is what you're saying. You're committing to that right now. I am always curious about these remakes. You know, why can't we just watch this instead of doing a remake? But, you know, actors, here, here's what I think it boils down to. I've been thinking about this because, of course, yeah. you know, I'm a little irritated. I love Tom Hanks. I'm a little irritated that he's doing a remake of A Man Called Ova because I just loved that film. But I think it's like plays. I think actors like good, juicy roles. And they see a good, juicy role and go, ooh, I want my turn to play that character. They have that in theater. But in film, you don't get that. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we get so many of these remakes. Because I think these actors are just like, oh, that would be great. I could really dig into that performance. I'd love to play that character. And that's the only way they get to. Hmm. So I think it's, uh, I think that's what it boils down to. Okay. That's yeah. your theory. You're sticking to it. Uh, I am. Okay. So how about awards? Did it win anything? Did people get noticed? Well, at the Oscars, it did get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. Um, this was the year that Letters from G- Letters from Iwo Jima was nominated for Best Picture. Um, it did not end up in the Best Foreign Language Film nominees. Uh, this is the year that The Lives of Others uh, beat out this and Pan's Labyrinth and Water and Days of Glory, uh, the Algerian film. Uh, It's the lives of others is just a favorite of mine. But of that list, 
uh, after the wedding, I think would easily be second. Strong, strong mm. films. Yeah. But that's not all. Over at the Bodil Awards, which are the uh, uh, the Danish critics choice, I believe we talked about last week. Uh, Stina, the the uh, the actress who plays Anna, she won mm-hmm. best best supporting actress. The film was nominated for best picture, but lost to A Soap. Also, Sidzo was nominated for best actress, but lost to Trina Driholm in A Soap. And Rolf was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Nicholas Bro in Offscreen. At the Roberts, which, as we talked about last week, are Danish, uh, the Danish Film Awards, uh, Stina also won Supporting Actress, actually tying with Stephanie Leon in Life Hits. The film was nominated for Best Picture, but lost to We Shall Overcome, directed by, uh, you know, somebody we've talked about before, Niels Arden Oplev, mm-hmm. uh, back in our um, Millennium Trilogy. Mads Mikkelsen was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to David Denchik in A Soap. Rolf was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Bent Medjding in We Shall Overcome. Sidza was not nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Trina Driholm in A Soap again. The film was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but lost to We Shall Overcome. Same thing for Best Costume, lost to We Shall Overcome. And then Cinematography and Sound were nominated, but both lost to the film Prague. Uh, and then we have... Um, the best editor uh, actually nominated, but lost to a three-way tie between a soap off screen and we shall overcome. So uh, it's, mm. it's interesting. I think the Danish film awards, you're seeing a lot of the, a lot of particular films taking a lot of awards and uh, you know, this one, um, it won one, but um, it yeah. seemed like Stina yeah. really got the notice in both cases, but right. Right. Well, and you know, worth it. She was great. Oh, yeah, uh, it's just fantastic. interesting to me that Helen and Mads didn't get uh, more notice. Right. I know. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, how about at the box office? Did it make any money? I honestly couldn't believe it, especially after last week. But I did find some budget information online for this film. In an article by Camilla DeMarco on CineEurope.org regarding the Rome Film Festival... Camilla wrote that this film's production cost 3 million euros. That is about 3.7 million in 2006 US dollars and 4.7 million in today's dollars. The film was released February 24th, 2006 in Denmark, then had its North American premiere at TIFF September 6th before its limited domestic release March 30th, 2007, opposite Blades of Glory, Meet the Robinsons, The Lookout, Are We Done Yet, and The Reaping. The film did okay for itself, earning nearly 1.6 million domestically and just over 10 million internationally, which is a total gross of about 14.8 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $84,000. Well, that's something. I mean, when you think about it, it really is just a wedding and a nice house. Like, that's what they paid for, for 3.7 million. Hey, there were a lot, a lot of oh, big cameras. We didn't talk about all the the animal heads on his wall. I thought that was interesting that he was obsessed with <laughs> with death. <laughs> That's right. That was a crazy scene. We didn't even talk about that. Too many heads, man. Mm. Too many heads. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I uh, I'm really glad we watched it. I think it was a great addition, especially after last week and my uh, middling uh, opinion of Open Hearts. Uh, and and what it did for us, but this one was a hell of a rebound. Now I I, I think you need to um, uh, watch her film in a better world that she did in 2011. It actually won okay. the best foreign language film. It's just it, it's really fantastic. I will do it. I yeah. will 
do it. All right, everybody. We will be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie. Fran Rubel Kazooie's 1992 vampire comedy, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which kicks off our final series for the season, 90s Comedies. I just met this girl named Buffy. I'm Pike. Pike isn't a name. It's a fish. I liked her, even though she seemed kind of flaky. But as it turns out... You have been chosen, Buffy. To do what? To stop the vampires. Does Elvis talk to you? And things started getting weird around here. Are we having a nightmare? You threw a knife at my head. And you caught it. She was the one person I could really count on. Kill him a lot. Hi. Hi. What are you doing here? What am I doing here? I'm saving your butt. That is a bad guy. Can we go, please? The Slayer is unmasked. Let's finish it. I think this relationship has potential. Hi. How's it going? You're obviously having a bad hair day. If she can just get rid of those other guys in her life. Stab him in the heart! Christy Swanson. I am so sure. Donald Sutherland. Ah! Ah! Paul Rubens. Ah! With Rutger Hauer and Luke Perry. Buffy, you're not like other girls. Oh! Yes, I am. Buffy, the vampire slayer. You didn't even break a nail. Directed by Fran Rubel Kazooie. All right, Andy. It's letterbox time. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are you going to do? Well, uh, and anyone who already has looked at my reviews have seen that over on Letterboxd, uh, when I first watched this a few years ago, I gave it four stars and a heart. And I think I'll leave it there. Although I feel like it's something that could go up um, with the more I spend with it, because it's I, I really just find it to be a powerful, uh, touching experience. Yeah, I um, I that's why I was saying I, I feel like you you sort of liked it. Uh, you liked it well enough at four stars because for me it is absolutely five stars in the heart. I had yeah. a fantastic experience with this movie, and and the fact that you didn't like it very much, I think is telling. <laughs> oh, I love it! I yeah. love it. This is a great, great, great <laughs> win. I'm so glad to have watched this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what did you think about after the wedding? We want to know. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in Discord, where we'll be talking this week about the movie. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Uh, letterbox giveth handy. As letterboxed, always doeth. Uh, yeah, there there are a lot of people who love this movie. A lot of people who have strong opinions about the music, and that's what we're going to talk about right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's. I'm gonna go first, uh, or should Do you it. go first? Do you want to go first? Go, no, me? send on the high. Who note. talks first? Who talks first? This is a two star from Jake Internet, who says, "My favorite weird thing about this exceedingly weird and bad movie is that it confirms, but in no way explains, why the film's patriarch, a stern and controlling Danish industrialist and family man, really loves the song It's Raining Men.'" <laughs> I I agree with all of that except for the exceedingly weird and bad part and the two star part that baffles me. That does. I agree. Yeah. Uh but just like yours, Ely also has comments about that. Great. Now I'll never be fulfilled until I dance to It's Raining Men with Mads Mickelson. <laughs> <laughs> but but in this case, 
gives it a four star. Four so stars. That's right. It's Raining Man is a four star edition in this in, in your review, <laughs> but only a two star edition for Jake. I don't get it. I'll never don't get either. it. All right. Thanks, Letterbox. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.